All right. Welcome, everybody, to the Juneteenth edition of Legal Tech Week. Uh, this is Bob Ambrogi, and uh, I'll be moderating today's discussion. And today we're going to have a special guest joining us, Jack Newton, the CEO of Clio, to talk about research uh, that Clio has done uh, on the impact of COVID-19 on the legal profession. But before we get to that, let's introduce this week's panelists and uh, Joe Patrice, let's start with you. Yeah, Joe Patrice from Above the Law. Um, nothing, nothing. I, I don't really have anything else to. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, it's it's been a long week, everybody. It has been. Why yeah. is it? It felt like it feels that way to me, and I, I can't even say I got all that much done. But it just feels like a long week. But all right, Nikki. Nikki Black, legal technology evangelist with my case law practice management. Um, I write for a bunch of different outlets. AVA Journal, Above the Law, My Case Blog, Daily Record. So um, I like to write about legal tech and talk about it. Okay. And Victoria. Hi, I'm Victoria Hudgens. I'm a reporter with Legal Tech News, where I cover cybersecurity, international regulations, data breaches, legal technology, and just in general how tech impacts law. And last but not least, the technology impaired today, Zach Warren. <laughs> technology impaired is right. I feel bad going on this just with an iPad because I have three different laptops and they're all broken right now. So that's my life. But hey, I'm Zach Warren. I'm also with Legal Tech News. I work with Victoria. Um, I'm editor-in-chief. So anything that is in our magazine or in ALM sister publications like the American Lawyer, Corporate Counsel, um, I help out with stuff like that. Awesome. And a couple of our regular panelists, Caroline Hill and Molly McDonough, both actually had, I guess, other stuff to do. Imagine that. But uh, so, so they're not able to be with us today. But so uh, let's let's turn to our guest today. Uh, and uh, Jack, I really appreciate your taking the time to be with us today. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Bob. And uh, I don't know that you need any introduction. I'm going to guess that most people watching this uh, know who you are, but maybe you could tell us a little bit about uh, the research you've done, uh, you know, sort of the parameters of, of, of what you've been looking at and then dive into some of the details. Yeah, that's, that's great, Bob. And, and uh, for, for context, only because it helps inform the, uh, the data I'm presenting, I'm the CEO and founder of Clio. Uh, Clio is the most widely used cloud-based pl practice management platform uh, in the world. And as a result, we've been publishing over the last four years uh, something we call the Legal Trends Report, which is uh, a, a, a data-driven analysis of three different things. One is law firm productivity. So we look at benchmark data like utilization rate, realization rate, collection rate, for law firms and how that evolves over time and, and how lawyers could potentially be more efficient. Uh, we've done law firm surveys to understand how lawyers work and, and how we account for what are in some cases very surprising uh, data-driven insights from the Legal Trends Report. And then finally, we, we've started over the last few years to do more in the way of consumer surveys to understand consumer buying behavior as it relates to legal and how uh, law firms might adapt their legal offerings to better serve consumer needs and, and meet consumer expectations. So this, this legal trends report has, you know, really, I think, become a bit of a, a seminal piece in the legal industry. One of the, I, I think, best 
if I do say so myself, one of the best pieces of data insight that the industry has to, to reflect on itself with. And as COVID-19 emerged uh, and we started to see really significant impacts on the legal industry, uh, we at Clio decided to pivot our annual legal trends report into more of a real-time analysis of what's going on with the legal industry as COVID-19 was, uh, was hitting. And, and that's exactly what we've done over the last two months as we had our first, uh, what we call the COVID-19 state of the industry briefing at the beginning of May and just this week, we're releasing our second briefing to the industry to highlight what, what some of these key impacts have been. And, and there's a little good news this week, right? I mean, in there, a sense. There's, there's a little bit of good news. So maybe what I'll try to do, Bob, I'll, I'll describe these verbally for anyone listening only over audio, but I'll also see if I can share my screen here um, and, uh, and show one of the important graphs from the data. So can, can you guys see the, the yep. graph that, uh, um, number one, I'll walk through what this graph is showing. So at the U.S. level, the number of daily cases that you can see starting to explode uh, in the beginning of, of March. Uh, and, you know, we started to see a little bit of a tapering off over the last couple of months, but we're still seeing 20,000 plus new cases a, a day across the U.S. And what we're going to plot next is the percent change in new matter creation um, across Clio's customer base. So the thing I'll point out here is, as with the Legal Trends Report, this is anonymized and aggregated data across the tens of thousands of law firms and 150,000 plus legal professionals that use Clio every day. And we've been able to condense this data in such a way that you know, we, we look at macro level trends while obviously preserving the privacy of any individual customer. But the really interesting trend here as you can see, is the significant decline in new matter creation bottoming out at around negative 33% the week of April 13th. So this gives us concrete data to talk about the level of impact in the legal industry. And I look at new matter creation as one of the most important leading indicators of what future revenues will be for for law firms. It's, it's not necessarily a one-to-one -one correlation, but it's certainly a very solid uh, and an important leading indicator of the health of the legal industry. The new analysis we released in this month's briefing uh, is laying on top of this year-over-year -year changes in monthly billing volume. And you can see, I, I would regard billing volume as a, a trailing indicator of the amount of work being done by the legal industry as a whole. And we can see that uh, while it was higher or you know, avoided the steep decline that we saw in new matter creation, which is a bit more of a real-time leading indicator, uh, we, as we worked through the whip that, that firms had heading, in, heading into the COVID-19 crisis, uh, we've seen billing volume decline at a, a fairly precipitous rate. So all, heading toward negative 30% and perhaps lower relative to pre-COVID-19 baseline levels. Now, the, the silver lining that you mentioned, Bob, is the, the bounce that we've seen just in the first week of, of June here, where we've seen a very healthy recovery, uh, not a total recovery, but a, the, the first significant bounce back to pre-COVID-19 levels. We're still at about negative 15% relative to that baseline, 
uh, but certainly healthy improvement over the negative 33% we were at in mid-April. And as you can see in this data, we've been, been seeing uh, a steady improvement week over week with, with a couple of drawbacks, but certainly a, a progression in the right direction over the course of the last, uh, the last two months. I think the other silver lining that we've, we've got here is some really important data to walk through in this survey. Uh, is, is coming from the consumer side of the survey. So number one- yeah. well, look, Can I just make, make one point oh, about what you're just showing, which, yes. which is that, and I guess you sort of just already said this, but just to be clear, that, that it, to the extent that the new matters are increasing, then that monthly billing volume will be, will be following that trend. Uh, exactly. And that's important to understand. So, so what, that's right. what, what, whereas it may, uh, you know, still be below baseline, it, it, it should be heading in the next, in the right direction over the next month or a couple of months or something. That's right. And if we kind of project out what we expect to see in billing volume, I suspect we'll see billing volume bottom out over the coming month or two, um, but hopefully continue to see the recovery in new matter creation. The other data point I'll highlight that I think is a little bit of a, a silver lining just if we're looking at the, the caseload we should be anticipating in the future is that there's a significant number of consumers, and this comes from the consumer-facing side of our survey, a significant number of consumers are, that are anticipating a legal issue in general that's now tracking at 25% uh, and 21% anticipating a coronavirus-related issue. We're also seeing a significant uh, portion of consumers that uh, express the fact that they cannot afford to deal with a legal issue right now. And another statistic that I found, you know, very surprising in this data uh, is, is uh, let me see if I can track that particular data, data point down. Uh, there's a significant portion of consumers uh, that believe law firms are closed. And that is actually uh, a remarkable number on the order of 30%. Uh, this is the slide I'm looking for that I'll, uh, I'll throw up here. 30% uh, of consumers believe that law firms have stopped offering their services amidst COVID-19. So when you look at the number of new cases that will be coming out as a result of COVID-19, legal issues that are specific to COVID-19, coupled with this enormous backlog that is forming because of court closures uh, and consumers' inability to pay for legal services, at least in the present time, I think there's good cause to think there will actually be a tsunami of legal demand in the coming months and, and in the year plus as we deal with the fallout from COVID-19. So for at least some practice areas, we're going to see a very busy few months uh, and, and potentially a few years ahead of us. Great. A few other data points if we want to, um, you know, talk about technology adoption as well. I think a really encouraging data point that came through in our survey is that both consumers and lawyers are more willing than ever to uh, adopt new technologies. If you showed me this data showing that 74% of legal professionals are equipped to handle electronic documents and e-signatures, by the way, this is not Clio customers, which, which is obviously gonna have some selection bias in it. This is law firms in general that we're sampling here. 74% are equipped to uh, sign electronic documents and deal with electronic documents. 77% are handling video conferencing. 85% are using video conferencing more than since the beginning of the pandemic. This is a survey of over 3,000 lawyers as well, by the way. So this is 
you know, a st statistically significant sampling of the legal community. And if you ask me, you know, what year is this survey from uh, in January of 2020, if you, if you were able to show me this slide, I would have said, I don't know, this looks like legal trends report data circa 2030. Like, I, I think we've seen a decade of progression in terms of adoption of technology get pulled ahead thanks to, to COVID-19. And I think that's really remarkable and worth, you know, worth celebrating. So I, I, would, I would highlight this update as, you know, certainly some deep concern for how many law firms will fare with such a precipitous decline in new matter creation and new billings over the course of COVID-19. Some early signs of recovery and, uh, and some important and encouraging early indicators of a trend back to recovery. Um, the, and, and maybe the final comment I'll, I'll have on, on the data here, uh, and all this data is freely available on Clio's website, by the way, so I know I'm, I'm going through this really quickly, but the, the other data point that I think is very interesting is looking at the state-by-state -state breakdown in terms of how different state responses to COVID-19 have affected the recovery of law firm uh, billings and uh, new matters and billings. So look at New York as an example. We, we know um, that New York had one of the most significant and severe lockdowns and so, set of social distancing measures put in place. Uh, and we've seen one of the sharpest declines in new COVID cases in New York. And uh, the recovery in uh, new matter creation in New York has been sharper than the U.S. as a whole. Um, and you can see that it's a very promising recovery, almost back to pre-COVID-19 levels in terms of new matter creation. Um, California uh, and Florida and Texas all paint a bit of a different picture with, uh, you know, you can see California fairly unsuccessful bat battle against COVID-19 and a a less significant recovery in uh, new matter creation. Florida, you know, uh, a little bit of a decline, but, but we're seeing, uh, again, a less steady recovery in new matter creation that correlates with their new cases. And Texas is another uh, good example of a state that's still stuck at negative 20%, negative 30% new matter creation impacts as its COVID-19 situation uh, remains, you know, essentially out of control. Uh, and, and, and the practice area specific data, I won't talk about it here because I know we're, we're running tight on time, but the other new bit of data we've got in this briefing is looking at practice area specific impacts. So as you would expect, some practice areas have been hit more severely by COVID-19 uh, than others. And, and surprisingly, some have actually uh, like intellectual property, insurance, have seen overall an uptick in activity, uh, or at least a, a sustaining of pre-COVID-19 business levels uh, amidst the pandemic. So this idea that, and I've heard this talked a lot about quite a bit in, in uh, legal circles is, how do you diversify your practice to weather the storm? And, and this is, I think, some, some very interesting data that might give you an indication of if you are gonna diversify, where do you wanna be headed? Really interesting, thanks. And, and my question is where, where is that, uh, the, the, this background on your desktop, is that, is that Vancouver? <laughs> that is not Vancouver. That looks like some, some island in the middle of the uh, uh, 
a very attractive place that is sunnier than than Vancouver. Uh, I'm afraid this is the default background for for Mac OS, but I, I liked it so much that uh, that I kept it. All right. Uh, yeah. So, anybody have uh, questions or comments, uh, thoughts on that? Yeah, it's extremely interesting. And thank you very much for sharing that data. I really appreciate it. I think my question is, if there is a second wave, will we see lawyers be more prepared than they were during the first wave and be able to respond a little bit quicker so that those caseloads don't dip the same way that they did in the very beginning? So maybe we're only seeing a 10% drop if, say, Florida does see a second wave as it looks like it's happening right now. Um, it's not really a question so much. It's just something I'm interested in uh, because this isn't going to be over for a while. So yeah. deal the ramifications of what's happening next is just a matter of conjecture, but conjecture that's worth thinking about, I think. No, I, I, I think it's worth thinking about. And I, I, I think there's... You know, an important lens on the data, I think, is, is number one, awareness that legal services, at least in many states, are deemed to be essential services. And, and furthermore, even in states, they're not deemed to be essential services. Most lawyers are working. Most law firms are open for business. Uh, so when you look at the data that says 30 plus percent of consumers believe law firms are closed, uh, and correspondingly in our lawyer survey, we saw only 2% of law firms are actually closed. There's a huge opportunity, I think, to improve communication and improve awareness that law firms are, are open. And I actually think this is something that should be addressed at the national level um, to help make this message really clear, make, make it really, really clear that law firms, you know, the ABA could be advertising at a national level. State bars need to be advertising. I've talked to individual law firms that have talked about the fact that they're marketing the fact that um, they're open for business. And that's as simple a message as you need. The second piece that I would highlight is that we've got, I think, um, a new level of awareness around how to deal with new technologies and new tools. So th to the extent there's legal demand, I think lawyers are better prepared now than they were before. You know, one, one of the uh, pr predictions I made at the beginning of COVID-19 is we're going to see, you know, a year's worth of techn technological transformation happen over the course of a few months. And I think we've seen that. I think we've actually seen, if anything, that was an underestimate. I actually think we've seen when you factor in the courts and all the other change that's happened, I actually think we've seen a decade plus, maybe two decades worth of technological transformation happen. So the industry from courts to individual law offices are better prepared to navigate uh, either a second wave or just an ongoing uh, social health uh, or health crisis where, you know, until we have the vaccine, we're, we're going to be in some weird state for, for a sustained amount of time. The last comment I would have is there's a lot of macroeconomic factors here that are outside of law firms control. So to the extent we see a second wave or to the extent we see the, the second shoe to drop, which will be the impact of the mass unemployment we're seeing right now, how will that impact law offices? And I, some level of you know, my take on this data is I'm a bit worried the second shoe, shoe is, is yet to drop. There's some chance that the real sustained and painful decline is yet to come. Seems like the, the troubling uh, graph that I saw was that more than half of potential clients think, think they can't afford a legal issue. Uh, and that right. even as we're seeing a recovery, that, that seems like something of a natural bar on the, the 
strength of that bounce if people just don't think they can pay? I think that's, that's a huge issue. And I, I think what it, it helps point to, Joe, I, I think is the need for law firms to be thinking about how they can meet clients in the middle. And sometimes this is as simple as accepting credit cards so that it's not all cash up front. Sometimes it's accepting payment plans or, or providing payment plans for your services. Thinking, at least for some practice areas, how does this work as a subscription service? Is there an opportunity to repackage your services a lower cost, higher transaction volume offering? Um, and, and my go-to on, on that as an example is, is Hello Divorce, right? Where Aaron Levine's been able to you know, really scale uh, divorce and, and make uncontested divorces highly transactional, much more affordable for her clients, and importantly, more profitable for her lawyers. Her lawyers actually make more money doing a higher volume of these very transactional cases. So obviously that's got varying implications depending on your practice area, but I think realizing that your clients are not necessarily, your prospective clients are not necessarily in a position to pay you everything up front. How do you calibrate your business practices and your billing practices to accommodate that is, is actually an opportunity. I think if you're an innovative law firm thinking about how do I not only survive, but maybe thrive amidst COVID-19, those are the kinds of pivots you can make to really help meet the market and, and bridge this gap. And we've talked a lot about access to justice over the last few weeks. I think when you look at the pre-existing access to justice problem, the World Justice Project data talking about obviously 77% of consumers that had legal issues had the, did not have those issues resolved or helped by a lawyer, that problem, I believe, is just going to get worse over the next, uh, the next few months and next few years because you have consumers that are less able than ever to pay for legal services. And obviously, this, this forming tsunami of legal issues that need addressed. So we're going to need to find some new ways to, to meet that demand and, and meet that need for, for, for access to justice. Nikki or Victoria, you have any uh, questions or comments on that? No. Uh, just there were a couple of things from the audience real quick, Jack, while we have you. One, one person asked uh, with regard to the Florida data, what, what the sample size was in Florida and whether it was lawyers or firms, if you happen to know that. I don't know the f sample size for Florida offhand, but it would be in the, the thousands of firms, certainly. But uh, that all of the data and the, the Florida specific data is actually data that you can drill into on our website via an interactive infographic. So um, check out the COVID-19 research page on Cleo's website and you can drill down in this data and explore it yourself. All right. And then uh, a, a real uh, question, uh, Mike, Mike Whalen is asking, uh, what, what trends or correlations should small firms look to if they're thinking about hiring? What kind of signals speak to adding capacity versus staying leaner? Yeah, so that's such a, a great question. And uh, I, think, I think the risk that we see in this data uh, especially when you look at, at, if you believe that this data is telling a story that there's going to be a tsunami of legal demand, I think many law firms, and, and we, we talk about layoff data here, you know, there's more than a quarter of law firms that have either made layoffs uh, and another quarter of law firms that are anticipating making layoffs. I worry that they've uh, really almost made a knee-jerk reaction to the immediate drawback we saw in legal demand, but then will end up even less equipped to address this tsunami of legal demand when it starts hitting over the coming months and years. So I think law firms have a real tightrope 
uh, to walk here where you don't want to draw back resources enough that you're not ready to service the demand when it reemerges. Um, but you also don't want to get too far ahead of your skis and, and, and run the risk of not making it there if the demand does not recover in time. So I, I think that there's, it, it's a tough question to answer in a really definitive way, but keep an eye, establish what the early indicators are for your law firm that you're seeing demand. That could be website traffic, that could be number of new inquiries and so on uh, that are gonna give you an indication of how much demand is out there. And we're also seeing data that shows that many law firms are doing a good job of pivoting their client acquisition strategies, which I think is, is really promising. Yeah. Uh, maybe one more question. I'll let, I'll let you go. And I, uh, there was a, just somebody asking here, what, what can attorneys do to address access to justice? And then adding to the question, should offer unbundled services, sliding fees, something else? Anything, any thoughts either from the, from the survey uh, or, or your own uh, perceptions uh, as to uh, what, what attorneys could be doing during this time to enhance access to justice? I mean, that's a big, big question, but it's, it's a big question, but Hey, I'll, I'll plug my book if I can, Bob. So I've got, number one, I wrote, I wrote a whole book on this. Um, and I think it's, it's doing client centered, uh, design. I think we're going to have to so, charge you for this entire appearance, Jack, at the end of the show. That's, that's fine. Send me the bill, Bob. I'll, I'll happily pay it. But, uh, you know, I, I do think that, that taking a, a ground up, uh, redesign in terms of what clients are you trying to solve problems for? What problems do those clients have? and how do you best, best address those problems um, is foundational rethinking that I think all law firms have the opportunity to do and maybe even the need to do in the COVID-19 era. Um, I, I think of a, a lot about like something as basic as, um, as a will. And I, I was talking about this with, uh, with Mike Whalen actually on his Facebook Live discussion earlier this week. But you think if you're a wills and estates lawyer, the traditional model is if you want a will, I'm going to charge you 500 or a thousand bucks for that will and give you a printed document that you can lock in your uh, fireproof safe. But when you look, when you do this client centered design approach and you take a client centered approach to redesigning your law firm services, you realize that what I'm looking for when I come to you or come to your website is peace of mind. I'm looking for peace of mind and how do you build everything your law firm is delivering against that desire for peace of mind. And to me, what that suggests is that a will should actually be a subscription service to the question, you know, is it unbundling? Is it, is it, uh, is, is it subscriptions? Is it, is it uh, um, payment plans? It's all of those things. Just find a way of solving the pain your, your clients are experiencing and, and rethinking how you do that. So as I mentioned, I think a will ideally is a subscription service. I'm paying you instead of $500 or $1,000 up front, which most people can't pay, by the way, um, there's the data we all saw last year from the World Economic Forum that the average American consumer can't afford an unexpected $400 expense. Um, you need to realize that most people, especially that was pre-COVID-19, especially now might not be able to afford that. But the desire for wills is probably off the charts and higher than it's ever been in, in mankind's history. Um, how do you meet that need in the middle? And I think it's with rethinking services and thinking maybe a will should be a subscription. Maybe it's a $50 a year service um, that's all of a sudden more accessible to clients. Uh, the, the peace of mind piece is better solved by a subscription because you tell me as part of that $50 a year, you'll send me a questionnaire that keeps my will up to date based on my evolving life circumstance as I 
have kids found a company, you know, change provinces, whatever the case might be. Um, and as a lawyer, you're actually making more lifetime value from that will than you would be from the upfront fee. Uh, you might make $2,500, $4,000 over a client's lifetime with that $50 a month subscription. The client's happy to pay that because they're getting their pain points solved. They're, the job to be done is peace of mind and is being done. And it's so much, what percentage of Americans could pay a $50 a year subscription? It's orders of magnitude more than would be able to pay a $500 upfront fee. So I think that's the kind of foundational rethink we need to have in terms of how legal services are done. And this is a win-win-win where we're solving client pain, we're increasing lawyer happiness, profitability, and satisfaction, uh, and we're increasing access to justice. And, and that's, I think, how we need to be solving you know, the problem. And obviously there's a role for pro bono and there's a role for other fundamental aspects of, of, of reaching the underserved and underprivileged. But I think even for middle America, there's a huge access to justice gap. And that's the kind of thinking that gets you uh, to at least some significant percentage of the access to justice problem being solved. Yeah. Okay, that made a lot more sense because when you first said uh, when you first said wills as a subscription service, I was going to say, you know, there may be a problem with that. I think that only happens once, um, unless you're right. <laughs> uh, but so when yeah. I first heard it, I was a little off. But all right, we'll give we'll give you ten deaths <laughs> for uh... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now now you want to subscribe to my service, right? Like you just yeah, have that peace of mind yeah. knowing knowing it's being kept up to date and you get a, yeah, a free half sense. hour consult every year where we just walk through what's going on with your life. And I think that Kimberly Bennett's another great example. Like she, she walks into every month with, she, she offers subscription IP services and subscription business strategy services. And she walks into every month knowing 80% of her revenues are taken care of thanks to the subscriptions that are rolling over yep. compared to the average law firm that restarts at zero and needs to figure yeah. out like, you know, how do I go out and build my book for the month? Uh, so I think it's, it's a far superior business model for everyone. And by the way, when you hit these economic headwinds, the other comment Kimberly had on, uh, I, I interviewed her on my, my podcast. I'm going to get two plugs in. Uh, <laughs> I think this is three. Send me a second bill. <laughs> three, okay, I'm going to take a sip from my my case glass now, just for the interest. <laughs> right, let's even things out. Let's even things out. But uh, on the podcast, I interviewed Kimberly, and one of the most interesting questions she answered was, what's the impact of COVID-19 been on the subscription side of the business? And essentially her answer was zero. It's been negligible. Like people look at subscriptions the, a different way than they do one-off costs. Um, but uh, let me wrap up there. I, I don't want yeah. to uh, monopolize this uh, whole discussion, but hopefully that is some good food for thought for everyone listening. Some great data that you can go and deep dive on and explore and it's all available for free on the Clio website. Yeah, no, it's all really interesting. And we appreciate your, your insights and, and, and the research that you're doing to help us uh, keep track of what's going on here. And uh, I know we, we ended up having you here a little bit longer than, uh, than we promised you we'd get you out of here. So I appreciate the extra time as well. So thanks a lot, Jack, and uh, good to see you. Thank you. Great to and, see and all. You're of welcome you to virtually. hang out if you want, or you can uh, you can sign off now. And uh, we're uh, going to. Unfortunately, talk to you. I've got another meeting to jump into okay. that uh, I'm a few minutes late for. But I appreciate you having me on. It was great to see you all virtually, and uh, look forward to chatting again. Maybe when the data uh, is is painting a, an encouraging picture. I hope in or uh, in my in, case next the... week. That's <laughs> right. Talking to you next week. So. <laughs> talk to you then, Joe. Sounds good. Bye.
Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. That's right. You can hear Later. Joe on, you can hear Jack on Joe's podcast. Next yeah. Week. So you're just going you to keep get hearing Jack. <laughs> plugs all around. <laughs> I'll need to get my invoice ready for when the plugs come there. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Um, so, uh, <laughs> where do we go from there? It's actually kind of funny because I was thinking, uh, Victoria, I was thinking about, about your, your story uh, this week uh, as I was listening to Jack because one of the things he was talking about was, you know, uh, the, the idea that, that lawyers have, uh, you know, made this transition to technology uh, so rapidly and uh, suddenly everybody's using video conferencing and everybody's using e-signing. Uh, I'm not sure they had a lot of choice about it. Uh, I, yeah. I'm not sure they were uh, entirely, uh, you know, maybe a little bit of being dragged, kicking and screaming into uh, into the 21st century. But but you had an interesting uh, article this week. Uh, do you want to talk about that? Uh, kind of look yeah, um, I wrote, I put together a slideshow of kind of like the five ways legal will remain, when it comes to tech will remain exactly the same after COVID-19. Just kind of looking at, we've seen so many announcements um, from about the legal about the legal uh, legal industry that it will be there'll be a new normal that they will have kind of have like a revolution with this whole pandemic and this major transition to working remotely, and my article my uh, slideshow looked at kind of like the tech perspectives that will still remain, and of course like what Jack was mentioning about um, adoption of e-signature and video conferencing that was kind of out of necessity. You can't just say, I'm just assuming everyone's going to still continue to come into the office when it's not applicable. Um, But I think some of the things just kind of, we looked at software and billing and tracking. That's something some people would say with COVID-19 and budget tightening that you might see more alternative fee arrangements. But um, my colleague, Frank Reddy, he kind of went after that billing and that billing software in the billable hour hour won't go away. And I would say, I think there's going, I would hope that e-signature still continues because there's some things that just is just more adaptable and just makes the services go by more quickly. But I think legal will probably revert back to once they're back in the office, go back to its old habits because that help them then. And I don't know if there necessarily will be client demand for them to remain as flexible as they were before. Yep. Yep. Any, any, any thoughts on that? Are we, are, are we, uh, one thing are, about are we... the, one thing about that article that, that I thought was interesting was so early on in the crisis, I was actually talking a lot to law clerk about the idea that if people get laid off, that there might be an influx in freelance attorney work. And, yeah, you know, and it turns out there really hasn't been at least not yet. Uh, and I don't know if that's that there just isn't, a new boom of it or that so many people feel as though this is temporary and that their furlough is going to run out and they're going to be able to go right back or I don't know. But that was really interesting because I actually did think that when this first started several months ago, that's the one place I thought there might be a little boom, but seems like there hasn't been. Yeah. Yeah. I'm seeing, we're seeing some firm, I don't know around where I am. We're seeing some firms. I'm definitely seeing some firms in Massachusetts business picking up again. I mean, they're, they're actually bringing some people back that they had for, there is a little bit of that going on from what I've seen here. I don't know how widespread it is and I haven't been following like what's happening at the larger firms so much, but. uh, I will say another thing that I've noticed um, from my other hat that I wear uh, is 
virtual law firms are really, really making a killing picking up uh, lateral partners all over the place. We just saw uh, Fisher Broyles just got the Secretary of the Army to sign on, uh, which is a fairly substantial get for a virtual firm. Uh, so I think there's people who are taking the necessity of feeling comfortable video conferencing and going, well, wait a minute, why don't I just keep more of my money and video conference everywhere? Yeah, yeah, makes well, sense. I think one thing that's going to happen post-COVID or, you know, as we emerge from our, op for lawyers emerge from their offices, at least during COVID, is that clients have gotten used to video conferencing. Lawyers have gotten used to video conferencing. Lawyers have gotten used to e-signatures. So have clients, both in a legal situation and otherwise. So I think that for certain things, you're going to find that sometimes they're going to do that for the ease of the client. So the client doesn't have to come down to park their car, come into the office, especially if it's just a short video conference or if they need just a simple document signed that they don't really need to talk to them about, you know, or if it's, or just retainer agreements, for example, you know, the more simple um, uh, course of business types of documents rather than like an affidavit and a summary judgment motion or something. So I think that because lawyers have gotten over that hurdle, especially with those, those, I mean, it was interesting to me that those were the technologies listed because that's in my experience, both, um, from what we're seeing in my case, and also just on the ground talking to lawyers at my local bar association on a day-to-day -day basis, that's just what most lawyers are tending to use right now out of necessity, you know, those particular technologies. But those, that's a big leap forward, and it, and it does make a difference. And I think because those are the ones that most are using out of necessity, they've gotten used to it, and they'll still continue to use it to an extent. So I think that, it, not to the extent they're using it now, but I don't think it's all going to completely go away either. Yeah. And, and also, I did mention just in the comments really quickly, someone asked about COVID-related lawsuits and if those might um, increase. And I just had thrown out in the chat, but I'll just throw out generally speaking that um, a lawyer in my tech committee who's a litigator predicted that there'd be a cottage industry of COVID-related lawsuits and that that's going to be sort of a niche practice area coming out of this, whether it's employment issues or, you know, litigation against an employer or a store or uh, arena for not protecting you or yeah you know so there's medical malpractice whole, I mean, just know. the interruption of business insurance yeah. is what I think oh for sure big. yeah yeah med mal a lot of the I think that there have been some protections I think New York State for example um, has changed the standard of care when it comes to COVID related care I, I could be wrong but I think well. I, yeah I remember reading that so for malpractice is going to be a little different when it comes to COVID related issues but interesting um, yeah yeah. Do you guys think we could maybe see an uptick of data breaches kind of related to COVID-19 and so many people working remotely and tech where um, employees using technology and having access maybe to personal information and it's not necessarily in like a, uh, their company's computer systems? Do you guys think that could be an issue that we see more of? I don't know, but I have actually been thinking about phishing attacks and why I haven't seen any of them. It strikes me as if somebody sent me a very scary email about like public health, whatever, like a month and a half ago, at least, I probably would have clicked on that. And that's, that, that strikes me as I'm shocked that the uh, criminal empires of the world haven't figured that out. Uh. Well, I think there have actually been some of those. I oh, remember really? okay. seeing warnings about that. They just didn't target you. <laughs> but I remember okay. seeing that there Fair were enough. some warnings about that. Um, I don't think it's been super widespread, but there have been some people. There, there has that. been a surge in ransomware attacks against law firms. I think we've talked about this on the show a couple of weeks ago, but there have definitely been uh, an increased number of ransomware, successful ransomware attacks against the law. Successful insofar as they've infiltrated, whether they've gotten their ransom, I don't know. But uh, and I've, I've been getting a ton of phishing emails lately. I, they're, they're not, 
uh, very well done. Uh, I mean, they, they, they haven't fooled me into, into uh, clicking, but uh, I, I'm getting a whole, I'm getting a ton of them. Um, See, I'm so still getting know. the ones telling me my Medicare benefits are going away. And I'm like, you, <laughs> like you doubly insulted me. Um, <laughs> but but I, I just feel like a COVID related one really could have took taken yeah. off at the time. But well, yeah. yeah, you should have been a criminal. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I say that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I do I want to point out whenever people mention ransomware, just because I've always been a cloud advocate, that ransomware and the cloud are two very different things. Ransomware is when your physical servers are locked down by these people. And if you'd had your data in the cloud, you still would have had either had a backup or you would have had no data to be locked down. Um, but, you know, the, then I do think- Although it can infiltrate from your, if you're using a syncing uh, between your, your local uh, computers and your cloud backup, um, the ransomware can infiltrate from your local computers into the cloud, is my understanding, into your files on the cloud and lock those as well. Depending, it depends on the cloud server and it depends on a lot of things, but that, that can happen. I mean, there should be protections in place from the cloud server, I mean- Yeah, it I, would depend. Yeah, they gotta, they got, they have to set things up properly on their end. Yeah. Um, but uh, and, but the other thing is, I think that a lot of the people that it, it depends on how they're working from, because if they're working through the cloud and they're using a good cloud provider, um, you shouldn't be seeing a lot of um, issues with, um, hack, you know, hacking, you know, lo loss of data right, right. because of they're okay. using the cloud. But right. um, but you could have issues where if they're not, if they have rather than cloud computing, where you can partition off certain parts of the firm and prevent, for example, admins or associates from having access to the financial data of the firm. When you, rant, when you VPN into a firm um, through a um, remote software, that's just, there's no way to partition off the data. You just have access to all the data. Versus right. when you have a cloud provider, you can only allow certain users access to certain parts of the firm's data. So the people that are remoting in with um, using VPNs and stuff, they may have an issue with employees having access to data they wouldn't normally be able to see or something along those lines, possibly. Yeah, good point. Nikki, do you want to talk about your uh, story of the week? Well, I mean, I just thought it was, it was my favorite headline that I stumbled across this week. It was, um, I think it was a, it was a California court, um, uh, trial level court, I believe, where a rogue employee used a Twitter account to send out a pro-Trump pro tweet but, and it was up there for a while before they realized and took it down and then had to, you know, do a whole mea culpa. But it just still, I, mean, I just thought it was, for some reason it just makes me laugh like a rogue employee. I don't know who pissed that employee off, but like <laughs> that they would take, it just amazes me that companies, courts, organizations in general don't somehow have those accounts kind of partitioned off so that only four people can access them, not the entire all the employees because that's bound to happen and it's gets such a public thing when it happens it just made i just thought it was funny I don't, I don't think it's like a super i mean it's more of just an example of you know lock your stuff down folks i mean come on <laughs> well it's also the, like the standard response when uh some uh misguided tweet goes out over some official account the first response is our account was hacked which is what mm -hmm. happened in this case and of course their account wasn't hacked <laughs> somebody sent the darn tweet out uh, right. Well, that was like that um, years ago, the the Utah one with the attachment that was inadvertent. Uh, oh, yeah. Inadvertently. <laughs> that was not a great thing to be happening either, but it happened. 
<laughs> that that, that may awesome. set the record for the fastest above the law ever got tipped on something. I think, I think we I think we had those forwarded to us within about a minute and a half of it happening. It's fantastic. <laughs> I think the thing that for me, Utah of all states, I mean, my husband was raised in Idaho and I'm very familiar with that part of the country and there's a very strong, strong Mormon contingent. And I just, I mean, of all places for that to happen. I mean, Utah, I just, for me, it just seems like unfortunate, particularly unfortunate for that reason, I guess, just yeah. because it, I feel like had it been like New York City lawyers, they, they all would have been like, ah, come on. Like, I see this in the subway every day. I don't know. Like, <laughs> but it just was unfortunate. But those kind of things happen, so. They do. Uh, who wants to go next? Zach, you, got, you want to talk yeah. about your... I mean, I feel like mine kind of ties into that a little bit, just in terms of people not knowing how to use technology exactly. Like they don't know how to use social media and accidentally or accidentally log in and send that tweet. Mine is kind of the same. It was a story. Um, DLA Piper was representing a propane company, was talking to a bunch of people there, dropped them as a client, and then turned around and was representing um, a group that was attempting hostile takeover of said propane company, which wasn't great when they accidentally sent an email to the propane company with an invoice for the hostile takeover. <laughs> um, so <laughs> propane company, not happy about that one, is now suing DLA Piper. Um, but it, it just kind of, for the kind of the same thing as Nikki, it caught my eye for just amusement and check your emails and who you're sending it to and make sure you don't do a very simple mistake like that because I know I've made mistakes like that accidentally sending to the wrong person, but with something extremely confidential like that, it's your job to double check that you're not messing up that badly. Yep. Reminds yeah. me of the story. There was a story couple years ago, Joe, you may remember, it was, it was Wil, Wilmer, it was, it was the law firm, and they uh, uh, were sending some highly confidential uh, client information uh, around a team, a litigation team or a transaction team or something, but just happened to add a CCC to a, a CC to a Wall Street Journal reporter. Uh, and uh, it happened yeah. the Wall Street Journal reporter got it and immediately <laughs> put the confidential information right up on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. So, well, yeah. the one that kept getting me was for a while, there was a, you know, 2016 timeframe, there was a rash of people just creating fake Jared Kushner accounts and emailing right. lawyers and getting tons of data out of them by being like, oh, yeah, here. Yeah. It's sometimes kind of going back to the point earlier about phishing and why it's a little bit surprising we haven't seen more of that. It does seem at times like the simplest emails are the ones that work best because people yeah. just don't put that much critical thought into it. They're like, oh, yeah, sure. Here, come on, give you all this information. That makes a lot of sense when, no, you have to think critically. Yep. For, for all the talk of technology competence in the legal profession, it, it continues to be the simplest things that create some of the biggest screw-ups. It's email, it's re redaction. It's still amazing to me how yep. many sophisticated major law firms don't know how to redact a document properly. Uh, and uh, it, it, makes for, it makes for good uh, stuff for us to blog about, that's for sure.
That's always Speaking of tech competence, I have it on good authority that another state is coming down the pike with a requirement of a CLE for tech. Which one? I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say yet. It's in committee, I guess, though. His ears perked up instantly. I love it. Sounds like New York. I, I will always, um, what, now I'm going to tell a personal story while we're here because this is what this happy hour is all about. Um, one of my early on in this job favorite Bob stories is that I was live tweeting some, like maybe at Ilta. I, I mean, it's going to be a Bob personal story. Well, it, it sort of is. So I was, I was Did it involved beer. I don't know. No, I was, I was live tweeting this event. I, I can't remember which tech show it was uh, talking about tech competency requirements for CLEs and how important for your licensing and how important it is. And, um, a particular gadfly of the legal industry, but a curmudgeon went off on me on Twitter. Like that's so fucking stupid. This shows how much little, you know, there's no state that would ever do something like that. What kind of state would do something? And Bob saw it thankfully. And from wherever you were, you tweeted in and went, well, for instance, your home jurisdiction. <laughs> I was like, oh. I had a, I had a guardian angel I didn't even know was out there for me. When that Happy to help. <laughs> but yeah, no, those tech requirements are definitely um, going to spread more and more. Yeah, I think so too, for sure. Hey, do you have anything else, Joe? Do you have any stories this week you want to talk about? Yeah, not not a huge one. Uh, about uh, old people don't understand reply all. Um, <laughs> Not, it, I mean, not, there's it, like a theme this week. Yeah, yeah we do. <laughs> Fine old. That, that's not. That's actually not fair because this wasn't a reply all. Judge Silberman of the DC Circuit just decided to email the entire circuit about how how he just really feels as though it's wrong that we take down Confederate monuments. Um, and this email just kind of sat there for a day and a half with nobody saying anything about it, including all the other judges, whatever. And um, thankfully, a a law clerk decided to take it on and said, you know, um, this is not acceptable. Uh, so this unnamed law clerk uh, did the brave thing of saying, you know, you can't get away with this. And other judges at that point jumped in and offered some help. But, you know, they found their backbone once a clerk found it for them. So that was uh, the only kind of tech story of the week that I dealt with. Otherwise, it's been Supreme. The Supreme Court's been doing a lot. And there's this John Bolton yeah. character who's like got some things going on. Uh, so that's really taken up most of my week. I loved, there was a piece that you wrote. I can't recall what it was this week, but I loved it, Joe. I love the way you write. I love just the quality of your writing, your sense of humor. It always makes me laugh. But then you're, it was about one of the Supreme Court cases, I thought. But it was so, you're very, you're very bright. I was very impressed with the piece. And it I just thanks, made Ed. me think how smart you were. Oh, <laughs> thanks. Uh, yeah, the, the first one was the Neil Gorsuch uh, is laying landmines piece, which was about <laughs> the LGBTQ decision earlier in the week. And then I the, think that might have, but yeah. that was what it was. And you yeah. raised a lot of things that just hadn't even occurred to me. And then the oh second God, one, um, she's barking. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, the second, the second one was basically me going, um, Sonia Sotomayor is the only one who was right in this DACA decision. Um, and everyone was happy about it, but I was like, this is an 8-1 decision the wrong way uh, for fundamental reasons. And so that was my one yesterday. But yeah, no, I've, I've, been, uh, I've been Debbie Downer on the Supreme Court this week. Everyone's happy. And I'm just like, no, it's all going to be awful. <laughs> You're not seeing how bad things are about to get. Yeah. Oh, well. Um. 
I know we're about to conclude. Do you mind if I throw something out? Wait a minute, I didn't do my story. I didn't do my story. Oh, you have your story, good. Well, you're telling your story. I'm just gonna stand up and let my dog out. So I'm not walking away (laughs) because of your story, but she's barking and, (laughs) okay, what's that? Wait, does your dog want to say anything? Maybe your dog wants to add to the conversation. She probably wants to go yell at her arch nemesis, either the okay. UPS guy or the mailman. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm not, I just, it'll just be one second. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I don't right, really no, have say much everything either. about my case that we didn't yeah, want no, to say. Yeah, right. we say good, say good things about my case. Uh, I, I, uh, I don't really have a lot either, but it was, it was a busy week. And I, I mean, for me, it was a couple what stood out were was yet another uh, major investment and yet another notable acquisition. Uh, the investment was this uh, $27 million uh, fundraised by this uh, company called Ana, which is a knowledge integration platform. And I think it's actually a really interesting company. I mean, basically, uh, it's, it's not it actually kind of started with its thinking about itself, I think, as a legal tech product, basically as a as a compliance and info governance product. But it's it's really, I think, becoming more than that. But basically, it's, you know, noting the fact that uh, companies just have gazillions of, of different apps. I, I think the, uh, the study, there was one study that said that a large company probably has 163 different apps. The average company has 88 different apps, you know, Slack and, and, and out from email to Slack to chat to everything else that they might be using. And, and there's sort of no way to connect, no easy way to connect all this different information with a company. And it, it creates a search problem. It creates an information governance problem. It creates a compliance issue. It creates an e-discovery issue. So uh, this company's product is all about, basically, it's created a, uh, a, a platform that pulls it all together so that you can kind of search across all these different uh, types of apps uh, and, and pull that data together. So I, I thought that was kind of yeah. interesting. Uh, if I can jump in on that yeah, one, because yeah. what I found interesting too is also the fact that Slack's fund was a partial investor in right. that one. Right. Yeah. Um, and, so, which, and Slack actually uses them in their company. Exactly. They opened yeah. up the API, and uh, there's a lot of connections there. So I, I just find it interesting for how many of these outside technology companies are starting to move into this space a little bit more and starting to recognize there are areas that we can integrate and even invest in these companies for better information governance, for more usage in the legal world. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, then the only, the only other thing I was just going to mention was uh, this acquisition this week by uh, Latera acquired this AI-powered contract drafting platform called Best Practics, uh, which is kind of a, it, it's a, a product that fits well with Latera because it's a word add-on and a lot of, Latera has a lot of products that are, that are word add-ons and are, are focused on document drafting. Um, but uh, it, it also struck me uh, when I when I heard that news uh, that it that it's um, it's been interesting over the last couple of months that th- I'm sure we all tend to hear from a lot of the same companies and and there are some companies that you just hear from an awful lot on a regular or on a on a regular basis that have kind of gone quiet during all this and there are some other companies that have just continued to do things and be active. Uh, you know, Latera is just one example. I mean, just a week before they had announced uh, Haley Altman as a new executive there. I mean, they continue to keep kind of putting out news and continue to do things. Whereas some of the other contracts, some of the other co- companies uh, in legal tech uh, 
a lot of them have just kind of gone off the radar for a, a month or two, and I'm kind of almost want to call them and say, are, are you okay? <laughs> is everything all right there? What's going on? And if anybody else has noticed that or any thoughts about that. Yeah, I, I think the answer to that might be no, <laughs> which is yeah. why they are going quiet. Yeah. Um, I mean, COVID's rough for a lot of people, so yeah. um, it, it doesn't really, I've noticed the same thing, certainly, but I can't say it exactly surprises me too terribly yeah. much. Yeah, yeah. All right. Anybody have any uh, last words, final thoughts? Well, I was hoping to throw something out there that's non-legal tech related, but I, um, I mentioned before we got on this call that my company, um, Appfolio is the parent company of my case, that um, they declared today a official company holiday um, because it's Juneteenth. And I, I feel like I'd be, and yesterday I attended a, an event sponsored by our company for employees that was an ally support group so that you know you could support um, the black employees at our company and some of the things I learned from that I felt like I'd be remiss if I didn't just acknowledge that it was Juneteenth and it's a holiday that uh, not a holiday but a rem day of remembrance that I was never aware of that I think a lot of um, white people were never aware of in America and also that I'm part of, I've always considered myself to be an ally, but I've learned from some of the rallies I've been to in the last few weeks. Um, I went to some of the Black Lives Matter rallies that there are a lot of parts of our history that I truly don't know anything about. And when I posted about this on Facebook, someone that I know said, I have a master's in history and I'd never heard of that Tulsa, um, the Tulsa bombing. Yeah. So there's a lot of things. So I just wanted to throw out there, there's a couple of things that I've been trying to do to educate myself and throw some sources out there, just in case anybody's interested. Um, I've been watching the Watchmen series. I brought my, with my teenage kids, I brought them in because I think that's a good way. And um, uh, I am watching a Yale course. I'm about into the fifth or sixth uh, lecture. There's a course for free on African-American history that's um, offered at Yale online. So I'm watching that. Then I've heard um, someone recommended the 1619 um, podcast series from New York Times. Um, so I just wanted to throw a few of, and also today's David last birthday from above the law and he has a um and he said that i didn't realize my birthday was ever on this juneteenth day i didn't know that it, what that was and so he i just he has a fundraiser for his birthday if you're connected with him on facebook um for a really good cause so i would recommend that as well i just wanted to i felt like i'd be remiss if i didn't acknowledge <laughs> that so and victoria yeah. i you know i do hope i don't hope i'm not like calling you out but i just <laughs> hope you know that i you know, I mean, what I learned yesterday, it's because you feel uncomfortable saying things, but that I um, appreciate you. And I hope that I know this is probably not as easy time for you to be going through all this. So I just wanted to mention that as well. <laughs> I'm still trying to figure out the ways to do that. To feel appreciated. So thank you. <laughs> and happy Juneteenth to everybody. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Uh, everyone should check out Digital Edge's 150th episode. I figure we should say that too. Oh yeah, because we're yeah. we're on it. Yeah, because Bob and <laughs> I are on, I it. on it. <laughs> yeah, th yeah. No, I think thanks for raising that, Nikki. I mean that that Tulsa thing. I I mean I can't believe I've never heard of that until I I saw it. It was on sixty minutes or something last last week, I think, or something. I, I had never heard of that of that. It is amazing how many people right? never heard of it until the Watchmen show. Um, and I, I mean, I hadn't heard of is it. Is that the Watchmen? Is that the Watchmen? It's the foundational. Uh, it's the foundational act that like sets the plot in motion of that, oh, mini, that. Of that series. Um, I, I mean, I didn't hear of it when I was a kid. I, I learned of it 
probably probably like seven or eight years ago. But I mean, given given that I'm getting calls saying uh, my Medicare is running out, that that is a you know fairly yeah. late in life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, uh, thanks to uh, everybody, uh, and uh, appreciate all your thoughts and insights. And thanks to everybody for listening and watching and uh, being part of our uh, experience here today. And uh, we'll see y'all next week.